0: When something goes south, it's usually the first thing that communication dries up, you know what I mean? So keeping those lines open and keeping contact with people that know, hey, I haven't disappeared, I wanna do this, and the more communication you have, usually the better uh, that situation turns out. Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts.
1: Welcome back, entrepreneurs. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Charles Carrillo, founder of Harborside Partners, a real estate syndication firm where he has been actively investing in multifamily and commercial real estate since 2006. And since then, he's invested in over $200 million worth of commercial real estate. Charles is also the host of the Global Investors Podcast, where he interviews professionals about investing in
0: U.S. real estate. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thanks so much for having me on, George. It's great to be here.
1: Now, you're a really interesting guy, and I want to let you tell your own story. So I'm just going to start by asking you, who is Charles Carrillo?
0: Uh So I'm a. I'm originally from uh, Connecticut. I live down in South Florida now since uh, 2012. But um, I grew up in the real estate investing business. My dad had been a multifamily investor, bought his first property in 1984, a few months after I was born. And um, it was a less than ideal area. He, My dad bought a lot of like... D and C minus class just to be nice properties. And they were really tons in the areas, the neighborhood that we lived in, where they were much more, um, you know, nine to five, two weeks off a year kind of professionals that you might see. And uh, my dad had a lot more flexibility and never missed, a, you know, one of my sports games or anything like that, or any type of extracurricular activity. So it was something that was... Um, uh, you see that, you see the freedom and you put two and two together as you start getting older and it becomes, you know, you start seeing what, what happens when you have this consistent revenue from, from real estate and from multifamily. And then I got out of college in 06. I bought my first rental property the end of 06, which was kind of a terrible time to buy. And uh, it was a three family, house hacked it, lived in one unit, rented out the other two and then did that again in 08. Um, didn't house hack that one per se, just bought that as a rental and then got involved with commercial properties really at the bottom of GFC in um, in 09. and then kind of grew there with bigger properties.
1: Hey, good. I was curious where you're going to go with that, because I know that a lot of interesting things about your biography. But if you want to talk about you want to hear about Charles and all of the exciting things that he's done in his life, and the places he's visited. We're going to get into that a little later. So uh, so you did mention your father, and I know that there's an interesting story. It reminds me of Benjamin Graham, mentor to Warren Buffett. Lost some money for his investors during the Great Depression, under no obligation to repay it, but he did. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we remember uh, Benjamin Graham for being a real monument of integrity in the financial world, that I understand that you got a a similar story from the early 90s. It was a little bit of a housing recession.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my dad, he was buying all types of stuff. I wasn't buying anything, but he was buying all types of these uh, apartment complexes. He was flipping houses. He was he was partnering with a developer to uh, build like back then half million dollar houses in, um in the area that we were located in, in central Connecticut. And um, it all went south. I mean, early all that went south, you know what I mean? It was like um, the last stuff happened in the late 80s and early 90s. But, um, you know, everything just went south. And then you when everything goes south, you have um, especially with short term loans, you know, the people that are doing development, the people that are um, heavy into flips, that is where those those loans are the ones that get called first. You know what I mean. And yeah. my you know my dad had a bunch of partners with those projects, and um, you know every one of those went bankrupt. And my dad was the only one that didn't declare bankruptcy and worked out to get his to get the lenders that he was under no obligation. I guess because they probably were non recourse, or maybe they were recourse. I don't know exactly, but um, you know you could do bankruptcy and you can just kind of wipe your hands of it. But he didn't, and he paid everybody back and. Um, Oh, that was something that uh, I've learned. And it was something that um, he taught me. Those are a tough couple of years before he got back on his feet and started buying more property. And what really two things about that, what really weathered the storm was really having apartments that really made consistent income through those times. So maybe the development arm went south. However, he was collecting rent every one of those months. And one of his partners like disappeared and he was managing, taking care of the whole property himself and it was still cash flowing. So it was, it was one of those things where you, you know, you, you realize how important it is to have a number of different units that you're kind of relying on a lot of different income sources that are coming in consistently, where the development was all like, you know, it's, it's much more of an aggressive, uh, higher return play, right? But the thing though is if it's not done correctly, it can be extremely dangerous, which I think, you know, most builders don't you know, they're not, they don't have it set up just like you would have like a, um, one of these large national brands that are building houses. And, um, it's really that everything's personally signed for one house does another one commingling of funds, you know, they're moving money from one person to another. And that's kind of how it was. And, um, I think how it is for most builders that I know on a small scale and, um, you know, having that consistent income from the multifamily really weathered it. And then also the other thing, learning thing I had from that too was, you know, paying people back, my dad was like, um, he had a saying, it was like, uh, if you owe anybody money, you know, just keep in contact with them. I remember hanging him, I hang up the phone and I'd be, I shared, we had like a room and he had his office and I would kind of do homework in there sometimes. And he hung up the phone and he turned to me and that's kind of like his whole thing he was saying to me. And I've kind of always held that with me. And so if you're on either side of a financial transaction that maybe isn't going the correct way, and usually... In years to come, it's mainly like you're dealing with tenants that maybe aren't paying and to keep those lines of communication open because that's when something goes south, it's usually the first thing that communication dries up. You know what I mean? So keeping those lines open and keeping contact with people that know, hey, I haven't disappeared. I want to do this. And the more communication you have, usually the better uh, that situation turns out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great story of personal integrity and communication. Very true. All too human to let the communication dry up. Bad news doesn't age well. Well, let's (laughs) get back to your story now. I know that you were able to make some extraordinary deals in the depths of that global financial crisis. Tell us, I mean, do you see here we are at the beginning of 2024? Do you see those sorts of deals coming back around again?
0: I don't know if they will um I'm, to that level um they might come around I mean in where we are now in the beginning of 2024 we have an, we're in an interesting part of the market where we have a lot of floating debt the recaps for those were usually 2 years and when our rates really started going up in quarters 2 3 and 4 of 2022 you know those are 2 years now coming they're going to be coming around and we're going to really see what those investors that purchased um you know for uh 4 or 5% less than what they're Loans are going to going to um going to change to. and it's something that we'll we'll see how it works. i I don't know. I think you'll see I think you'll see deals come more deals come on the market that are probably less ideal, right? You're going to see probably lower class deals that get foreclosed upon, that get sold. Um, and I think you'll see better deals that maybe are closer on their numbers that have better business plans that have the ability of actually getting rents to where they're supposed to be. In the um, the syndicators mindset, Um, those might work out deals and those banks might kick them down the road. But you don't know. I mean, that was a lot what they did for personal homes back then Um, in like 2010, 2009. I remember I'd have contractors, I had a couple of contractors, and they didn't make payments on their house. And they would like bring me the paperwork of uh, to my office and they're showing me, um, hey, you know, like, what does this what does this mean? and it was they would be changing it into 4-year like if you owed $100,000 left on your house they gave you a brand new mortgage at that time for 40 years you know what i mean and just in the hopes of hey this person is just going to keep this house for 3 or 4 years we don't really have to keep it on the books for 40 years which i imagine a lot of people did you know they ended up selling it once they got back on their feet or whatever happened or they came right on it and it was uh, it turned out to be good debt for the bank but i don't see it and i think that'll be the same thing with like a lot of good assets so i don't know how much we're going to see come back on the market 2009 was a I mean in the depths of that I mean it was a bloodbath and it was if you were doing if you were flipping houses and you were selling to FHA buyers you could make money right and we did some flipping at that time too but it was so important to make sure the houses would get FHA you know what I mean because if they weren't or something wasn't safe enough and we're like oh no 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 this isn't going to get FHA like approval or anything like this you know something with the stairs because these were older houses built in like the 60s and 50s that we were dealing with and that was something like, nope, can't do it because you would never get any other financing. I remember I finished a property like in 2010 and um, a commercial property, five units, completely rented out and literally loaned a cost from what I bought it. And for the work I put into it, I had banks that I had relationships with for five, 10 years, giving me like 10, 15% loan to cost on that. That's what they would loan me on it. You know what I mean? And there's all these stipulations, obviously, a whole list of them that comes out. You know what I mean? So you're like, you just don't even want to loan money. Like, I mean- and, you know, it's it's funny with banks is that in the best of times, those are usually when the worst of loans are done. And then at the worst of times, it's usually when the best loan, because, I mean, if they're paying rent, it's just that people just, they got, people got burnt. Everybody got burnt on both sides of that coin back in, you know, the GFC. And it was just, um, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I don't see that happening now. You can still get lending. Yes, you're probably not getting 85% loan to value on floating rate debt. Um, you know, if you're, if you're buying, you probably are getting... 65, 70% on purchases. You know what I mean? So that loan to value has come back down a little bit. But it's something that um I mean, there's they're still lending. If you have good deals out there, construction's still lending, and these things were pretty much non-existent for many years after, unless you dealt with private investors. And they were obviously had money, so they were being very conservative as well.
1: Yeah, very true. My favorite quote about the banker is, bankers banker, somebody who will loan you an umbrella. When the sun is shining. So, <laughs> yeah, take it right back the moment there's a cloud in the sky. But so, yes, truly amazing deals. I don't know if you really got very, very deep into like how you're doing those deals, but uh, I mean, we can go back to that if you'd like. But re- really exciting. Here's another topic residential brokers. I think most people in commercial real estate say, like, hey, I'm in my own space here. Don't deal with residential brokers, but I know you make a point of reaching out to these people. Why?
0: Residential brokers is a, especially if you're in um, multifamily or any kind of asset class, um, you're going to get a lot of overflow. I've purchased uh, commercial properties, small commercial properties. I'm not talking like uh, multi-million dollar properties from residential brokers, but I've definitely purchased um, small commercial properties, small multifamily properties, mixed use properties from residential brokers because residential brokers is the same thing as we were talking about. They know like one to four units, right? They know they'll tell you all day about FHA. They'll tell you about... Comparables, all that stuff. When we start getting into, you know, most eyes start glazing over when we're talking about cap rates and we're talking about NOIs and uh, forced depreciation and everything else that goes with it. So that's something where if you have, everybody has a real estate agent or someone they know that's one and they're selling houses for someone and then that person comes across and they go, hey, you know, I have a 10 unit and the real estate residential broker goes, great, we can sell that too. You know what I mean? And then they're just like putting it up there. They're just like throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's when you can kind of reach out to them. And um, hey, you know, if you're dealing mainly people around your mailing list for MLS and stuff like this, they're probably not interested in this. And this is something that I might be interested in. Or they might say, hey, I have an investor that um, has asked me about these properties, and um, you know, we might not be able to do it off market. You know what I mean? So. I think building those relationships with the residential brokers is super important. And um, because there's not gonna be that much competition. You know, if you're you go to a residential broker and you're like flipping houses, right? And I mean, everybody's looking for all these like single family houses that need a little bit of work and you can resell them, stuff like that. And those are dime a dozen, you know. But these residential brokers, they're not getting approached all the time by people that might take off that eight unit, right? Or that nice brick. 12 unit down the street, um, off their hands, um, when someone comes to them and they don't want to turn away business, which I understand, but also they don't want to come, you know, they're not also a professional in that they're more of uh they're a specialized in, in their residential. And there's a lot of brokers that won't go into investments like that for that, for that exact reason. So I think it's, um, I think it's very important to when you're building out relationships, you're building out your broker relationships, obviously dealing with the commercial brokers that are selling properties, of your class in the area you want to be in is important, but also um, when you run across a residential agent, give them your card right on the back exactly what you do. And uh, I mean, they're great networkers, good residential agents, and they'll hold on to your information and give you a call.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always a wise move to go where the competition is a little less fierce. Good, good news there. Well, one of the things that I like to do on this podcast is open up to the breadth of passive investments that are available. Now, I know that as an operator, as a general partner, you focused on multifamily at Harborside Partners, but I also know that in addition, you've you've passively invested in many different asset classes, such as commercial real estate, ATMs. Early stage technology and ag tech startups. So, uh, tell us about that. What are some of these investments you've made, and and uh, you know how's that impacted you as an investor?
0: Yeah. So when we do when with under the umbrella of Harborside Partners, and, and when we do investing and work with passive investors, um, right now we've we've been focusing like staying in our lane with. Value add multifamily, and also with new construction and multifamily new development. And when I've invested passively outside of that, uh, when I've gotten into those type of industries, I've invested um, angel investing, something that very much interests me. It's obviously a, it's interesting to be on the other side of something you don't, because when you're dealing with past investors in multifamily. Take a lot of things for granted, knowing it for so many decades, but you have a lot of newer investors in passive investing um, getting into multifamily, and I'm on that way with learning about angel investing. So when you're speaking to the syndicator, the lead operator of these deals that's putting together, and you're kind of like picking their brain of what they do and why they do it and i think that's like super important um it's it's a great way of me finding out what it is to be on the other side of it but um you know angel investments is just a different it's different it's much higher risk it is um we speak in real estate a lot more conservatively about what we're doing and um you're really you know we're telling people oh you know it's like a 1.5 uh, equity multiple or 1.6 and really you're going into any of these funds. If you invest in like angel funds, they're literally, if they're not like three or four or five X, I mean, they're like a, a failure, but it's, um, but it you know, it comes down to who's operating them. And, you know, just like the same thing with us, it's a deal flow. It's figuring out exactly who has the ability of seeing new companies. Like when new companies need funding, it's the same thing with brokers. When they have these properties that we want to buy, Um, where are they going to? And they're going to go to the, they're going to go to someone that knows they can close. They're going to go to someone that's, It's honest, and they're they're small communities, you know what I mean? Angel investing, multifamily, you know, syndication, stuff like this, commercial syndication. They're smaller. When you go to a lot of these conferences, you see a lot of the same people you know. People tell you about other people. I mean, it's very small, and I think it's the same way of how in partnering with someone that is knowledgeable in that, it makes it a much less risky, I guess you would say, investment.
1: Yeah, outstanding. I think very, very important. There's such a breadth of opportunities out there. And I find it very sad when people just limit themselves to either just stocks or bonds, or even if you get to the world of alternative investments, and then you just stop at the first place you see, don't stop at the first train station. There's a lot of other very, very exciting places to be. So yeah, your investing career, or I should say your business career is even wider than that, because I understand that you started an online payments business in college I know people that are able to do you know so many diverse things like start businesses, uh, manage real estate, etc. I imagine you have got to have some great time hacks. So, what is your best productivity or time saving hack?
0: Uh, time saving hack, I would say that um, I just I keep a list of um, regular tasks and um, outsource those or send them to an assistant as soon as possible, and that's one thing for me spending more time in um, what I'm working on and alongside that is also time blocking out important activities that might happen every week. So you might have something that happens every week, a certain time, time block that out. Um, and then having really, when I run um, like a to-do list kind of thing every day of what you're doing, you really have like the one or two things that need to be done. And that will make the day successful. So I think it's really prioritizing what you're doing. And then also time blocking out things. And then also getting stuff off your plate as soon as possible. You know what I mean? Get those sent out to people that probably can do them better than you. If you don't like doing them, you're probably not doing as good as someone else can.
1: I love it. People hold on to their tasks too long and you're just actively trying to send those out as soon as possible. I like that. Putting a a system in place, right? You've got a practice of writing it down and getting getting it off your plate as soon as possible. Well, um, how about? Uh, I think that goes hand in hand with focusing. Tell us about how did you recognize your own strengths and how do you? I think you've already told us a little bit about how you you manage your time to to, to focus on those strengths, right? You're blocking off the time, but the process of recognizing your strengths and really becoming uh, the best you. How did you do that?
0: Uh, finding out where I really excelled and things I really liked. So it was one of the things is that when I did start that payment business, I uh, ended up merging it uh, with my brother, who had a similar business uh, several years back before going full time into real estate. And uh, my brother was much more on the marketing side of it. And that part of it, I was much more on working with uh, sales and operations. And knowing where you really excelled and stuff you hated doing or stuff you started always kind of outsourcing... And um, focusing on that, and then working with a partner that really complements that, and it's a, it's a it's very important. And it's, I mean, if you're partnering with someone with similar skills, mindset, specialties, you're going the wrong way. You have to partner with someone. It's difficult because you're not going to be, you know, people that are have a similar you know similar specialties. They like each other, and that's going to be easier to partner with. But it just won't work out. You want to partner with someone that picks up where you leave out. And um, it's like I'm not a huge underwriter. I do some quick analysis things. I do it, but we have underwriter that we use. And then we also have a third party underwriter that also kind of checks off on certain things that we're working on as well for an unbiased uh, review of it. And that's the way we've been able to do it so that it's not, it's just not something that I spend my time doing.
1: I love it. And I think that what goes hand in hand with knowing who you are and then knowing what you don't do, like what you want to pass on to other people. What about your list of non-negotiables? So what does that look like? How did you arrive?
0: Uh, so when I work work out a non-negotiable list, it's it's really just, um, it's, it's great for when you're doing your goal setting and um, you can kind of add to it. And every, like everything with goals and objectives of what you're trying to do, these are all going to be modified as you go. They're kind of works in progress. But, um, you know, non-negotiable list for me, it's looking like um, when I was doing something, it has to be years back when I started, it's like... Um, has to be able to be location independent, right? Has to have the ability of scaling. I mean, these are things whenever getting involved in any type of business, these are important things. And then you have non negotiables when you're working with partners, you know what I mean? And uh, things that you want to see, you just won't bend on that, right? It's like if you're renting an apartment to someone and their credit's not right there and they don't have the 3x income per month, and you're like, that has to be, it's non negotiable. You have to hit this or it doesn't come in. And if you make that with your, you put these, sets these principles with your own life and with people within your business. Um, It would be like when we had pain processing, we had certain accounts that came in that never got, we could never like get placed, get put up. And it'd be like, all right, these, we don't even touch these get like deleted. And uh, you know, we have an automated thing that goes out to them and says, you know, sorry, but we don't have a, we don't have a solution for them. And I think doing that, it just saves your time because you look back on everything. And uh, one of my favorite books is like the 80, 20 principle. And, It helps you make out your non-negotiables because you know exactly if you look back and you see where I was successful, what I did that was really successful, where did I waste a lot of time, whether it was last year or last month or in the past. And if you figure out exactly what you've really been doing that's actually been turning the wheels, you know what I mean, building that snowball effect, um, then you can kind of put the other stuff off your plate if it doesn't need to be done or don't do it at all. So um, I think building out non-negotiables is something that – you know just focusing on exactly what you really want to get out of it and um what you're trying to get out of your life and what you're trying to get out of your business and then developing as an entrepreneur you can really develop it and set it up so I'm one thing is like I had an office before years back and we don't do an office anymore you know what I mean we do everything remote we hire remote and um it just got cemented with with covid but it was something that did for years before that too and it was something like um it you know these are different non-negotiable that I've kind of instilled in my my work and personal life.
1: Beautiful. Well, I say with that, uh, let's let's wrap on the first segment here. We got to talk about a lot of uh, interesting things, like the joy of owning Class D properties, some mindset, and the wonderful breadth of investments that you can uh, as a passive investor invest in. Of course, we're going to be focusing on multifamily. And we're going to come back and I think we're going to talk a little bit about self-management and your podcast and some of the other fascinating things uh, that you've done and are doing with your life. So with that, uh, let's wrap on the first segment. Charles, thanks for taking the time to share your knowledge and experience with our audience.
0: Thank you, George.